0: Welcome back to A Sort of Young Person's Guide to Prog Rock. I am your host, Ian Price. So in the last episode, the Beatles upped their game with Revolver. But the summer of love was burning hot, and the most commercially successful and beloved band in the world was going to create their psychedelic masterpiece, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So, hot off Revolver, the Beatles would stop touring, playing their famous last concert at Candlestick Park in 1966. But brimming with ideas, Paul proposed recording a live album and sending that on tour. Mishearing his roadie, Mal Evans, asking for salt and pepper, he dreamed up the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, a groovy alter ego band, that would go on tour for the Beatles. Knowing that they'd never have to play this album live, they experimented with textures and techniques and created a really eclectic mix of music that captured the summer of love, but would also further the concept that rock bands could experiment and that people would listen. This album would give creative license to a new generation of musicians, the generation that would go on to create progressive rock. So for me, this album was a junior high school edition. This album is brought up in pretty much every list of the greatest albums of all time, so it was inevitable that when I really got deeply into music, this would become required listening. And indeed, most of these songs became jamming staples for my various high school bands. This album in particular makes for a great foundation as all the songs are playable, but so creative and interesting that they're really rewarding to play. In the 20 years since first hearing it, I always find more to hear in this album And I suspect the same is true for my guest today. So today I'm joined by Anne. Hello, Anne. Hi. Nick. Hi,
1: everyone. Happy to be here.
0: Welcome back. Ryan.
1: Top of the morning.
0: Welcome. Ed. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And with that... We'll start with you, Nick. Sure. Tell me about your history with this album and what you think about it.
1: What I thought was really interesting was uh, the entire time this really feels like a John album to me because of all of the psychedelic nature of everything. Um, but what I thought was interesting is that most of the inspiration for like the concept came from Paul. And I don't think it's any coincidence that it was after he started taking LSD that he came up with this concept, or he sort of leaned into it a little bit more. So uh, drug use played a heavy role in this album, of course. But I also think that it's interesting that it conveys those feelings even without being on drugs. So I think that's one of the more interesting things about uh, Sgt. Pepper's because it's really the first album to ever even broach anything like that.
0: Okay, Interesting. And tell me about how you
2: feel about Sgt. Pepper's. I think that the bulk of my Beatles consumption growing up was through the vehicle of best of albums and compilations. While I knew a, a bunch of these songs, I didn't I never had the larger context of where they fit in on the album as a whole, which was an interesting kind of revelation as I was listening to it and hearing all the pieces fit together for the first time as opposed to Singled out on some album that some person had decided um, this is the order the song should be in. Um, I was also <laughs> struck by how many of these have been used commercially, um, like by brands and companies in their advertising, and um, that I just heard and never made the connection that this was from this album. Um, so this was, it was a fun listen because I don't think I'd ever actually sat down and listened to the entire album straight through as opposed to just consuming all of the songs separately fabulous Ryan.
3: so to me i don't think it, my opinion is going to blow anyone away or i'm going to say anything terribly controversial other than it, it's not Prague, it's proto Prague. i can't argue they invented anything new here either because they had already i mean they'd done some very heaviest obvious experimentation you know when we talked about revolver and what they did there and getting away from the pop formulas that had uh, dominated some of their previous efforts but revolver was not a concept album at least they, they weren't trying to organize everything around a theme or a couple different themes and uh, they, they they hadn't been trying to have the song come together as something more than just this you know collection of tunes that you could sit down and enjoy for an hour um i'm one of the people that think that all of the uh, all of the drug references are, are maybe a little bit overblown because i think they i think they're really well placed and tongue-in-cheek and that like the song's not actually about drugs, but it's—they're putting the bait out there for the stodgy old conservative people to—to to take it and think that the song means to glorify drug use. It's—it's it's really obvious, heavy-handed stuff. But it's almost like they're winking at the audience and knowing that hey, we'll, we'll give the—we'll give the old folks an inch, and they're gonna run for miles with this. And it's fun to watch them all freak out because the song actually isn't about just psychedelia and, and taking drugs, and not at all, actually.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Ed, so how did you come to this album and uh, where does it sit for you and the Beatles in your life?
4: Um, okay, so yeah, a lot of um, my first listening to music is it's like dad's record collection. And, you know, if you're going for someone's record collection and you see the Sgt. Pepper's album cover in there as a little kid, that's the coolest album cover. You've got all the all the faces on there. I remember sitting and asking, you know, who's this guy? Who's that guy? So yeah, like in inside the thing, you can cut out the the Beatles and put different costumes on them and stuff like that. It's just it's just silly, but as a child, you're looking at this, it's like it's the coolest thing ever. And like my dad had started cutting it out and decided halfway through, actually, I should hang on to this. And he's put sellotape on some of the cutouts. So yeah, it's an early album for me, and because of that, it's it's never like stuck out as being wow this is so incredible it's done this it's done that it's more like why why hasn't other people done these things when i've heard other albums you know um but then listening to it later on in life as an adult it's it's the production that's really exciting you know i love all the the sounds of the tape modulation. It's something I love in my own recordings now. You know, I love all that stuff. And yeah, it to, to me it's this is this is a George Martin album, not a Beatles album. You know, those guys put him for his paces. You mentioned this is a four track recorded album, which is crazy, you know? It's it's built on reduction. Everything is recorded or bounced onto another track and it's just, you know, the technical requirements of that is is It's mind-blowing. That's what's mind-blowing about this album for me, you know. um, I wasn't aware of the drug use thing (laughs) because I was a child listening to it. But, you know, Nick mentioned this this is when McCartney started joining them on their LSD journey. So I guess Revolver is three men... On LSD, this is four men on LSD. <laughs> um, from from what I understand, I think McCartney and Lennon had a had a, had a better bond because of that. And and you know, I think um, where I put this album in the Beatles' journey is the kind of the beginning of a new chapter in their career. So they they are now working together differently. Um, Lennon and McCartney are working together writing, in a way they hadn't before um and i guess in the history of kind of rock and roll it's like yeah it comes it comes after revolver it comes after pet sounds um but this is some guys who you know they're not playing music to play live they're playing music to record in the studio and that is why it sounds like it does they're trying their best to make something they can't perform and nobody does that or no one had done that before then
1: yeah um just to sort of Comment on th- uh, things that you were saying, Ed, and things that Ryan was saying. I do think that it's not a like a celebration of drugs. I think that sort of just came through, um, just like their life experience. But uh, I think more of what it was a celebration of was an alternative worldview, because previously, like every single album was like, "Hey, like love me do," you know. Now we're starting to get into you know like Pet Sounds, like like uh, has been brought up quite a bit you know, the content of albums were starting to change. But this was like, hey, the biggest artist in the world is now talking about this alternative worldview. Maybe you should check it out or at least learn about what it is. Uh, and I think for a lot of people that lived, you know, like the clean cut lifestyle, they probably, that was probably a huge wake up call. I know it was for my dad. Like, he, he's just, like, a couple months younger than George Harrison, and he remembers when this album came out, and he was like, oh, okay. Th- like, the world is changing now, uh, because the Beatles have embraced this, you know, summer of love-type worldview.
0: Yeah, I, I'd say that's entirely how I feel about the content of this album, and I think, like, obviously at the beginning, they set up a concept concept. But it falls away pretty quick. And then I feel like you have Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which is just psychedelic fun. But Getting Better, Fixing a Hole, She's Leaving Home, Within Without You. Almost sound cliched now, but the the very Summer of Love, Personal awakening, Awakening, Personal Growth, Looking Away from She Loves You and Boy Meets Girl type of song into what we consider to be very 60s. And then more, I guess,
2: introspective outlook um, it it does feel like this is one of the I feel like most not most successful I feel like John and Paul worked together really well on this song um, I feel yeah. like I can hear their distinct styles and the decisions that they made in a way that still blends them together really nicely whereas previously it it very much did not feel that way.
4: Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I agree with that. Again, yeah, going back to the the LSD thing, I think before that they were two separate songwriters who came together on albums and you can hear when that's a Paul McCartney song, that's when that's a John Lennon song and you can hear when they've worked together but it, but it feels like two guys who are doing it for a paycheck whereas on this it feels like two guys who are real friends working
0: together. So I've got a controversial opinion um, I think this is almost entirely a Paul album that John, George and Ringo worked on And I'll say they worked on it with great talent, because if you're going to have a session player, John's the best session player on earth. But I really get the feeling that this is a Paul production with George Martin that the other three just hung out on. Because all I hear, I mean, besides the incredible playing and the beautiful vocal harmonies and all the beautiful production tricks and all that, all I hear from the other three is 110% being checked out. And I say this because whilst we won't be coming to it in two albums time, on the White Album, you can hear all three and a half of them really blossom into themselves. You hear While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which is just arguably one of the George Harrison ones, but actually I like his other contributions there. You hear, like I think it's like 17 really good John songs, and you hear Paul doing Paul's thing. And I feel like you hear Ringo playing, you hear George's guitar, like you really hear the Beatles coming back on. I feel with this, you're really just hearing Paul conducting a band.
2: I so disagree. I so, that I, is a hot take. Well. That is a hot yeah. take. Yeah. I, won't, I
0: disagree as well.
2: I, I'll just say, I won't argue that, that this is the pinnacle of their collaboration as a band. I won't say that by any means. I will say, I honestly don't, believe paul mccartney is capable of writing many of these lyrics Uh, and maybe i'm being influenced by by his solo career after the beatles or his previous works but some of these songs i feel are too deep for paul (laughs) ed were you gonna say something so during the break
4: between revolver ending tour writing this Um, Paul McCartney and George Martin did work together on a a film score. So I imagine you get that energy in the studio. You're going to hear what you think is more of Paul running the show. But I think it's probably, yeah, he has got a close relationship with the producer and and you can probably hear that. But then you've got so many distinct individual, you know, songwriting performances from the other guys that... You know, that's why I kinda of disagree with what you're saying. <laughs> oh my. Especially when you think of like one of the things um, you know, George Harrison was doing in that time off was learning to play the sitar. And then you've got within you without you, it's you know, that that vibe is also there on Leasing the Sky with Diamonds. Like I think what happened in that break tells you what's going on and who's writing.
3: Well, Ian, I- I'd like to inquire about your spicy point there, though. What else would you say to support your, like, you're your positing that hey, this is all Paul's album, other than the fact that it is his concept—the whole wacky Edwardian Sergeant Pepper's bit, the maybe kind of imagining him as the the master of ceremonies, though. I, maybe it sounds like I'm making your point for you, but <laughs> what else would you say? Because I don't actually necessarily disagree with you, but I'm just curious how you would defend that yes, this is absolutely the Paul show.
0: So he's got eight of the 13 songs. I think John helped out a little bit with Getting Better and She's Leaving Home. John has four songs. Admittedly, Day in the Life and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds are masterpieces. And of course, John's John's John. Fine. But I would say the the really strong points of this album, uh, Sgt. Pepper's, with a little help from my friends, kind of the jaunty show of getting better and fixing a hole are so painfully Paul. The concept, as you say, is completely Paul's. And if you listen to the instrumentation, Ringo's not as interesting as he normally is, and then everything else is subsumed by the layers of psychedelic nonsense. You know, later when you can hear John say in Abbey Road or Let It Be and or Get Back, you can hear John really playing some guitar. And then obviously you can hear Ringo and George just doing what they do. And they're there. They're present in a way that they're definitely not on this album. So I'd say these are very Paul compositions. It's a very Paul subject matter. It's definitely Paul's concept. And then George Martin put all the awesome psychedelic stuff on it and obviously i will give john his his due he comes through with two absolute legendary Beatles songs and that's you know that's john lennon
4: yeah i think as well i think john lennon is definitely he is going through a, a period in his life where he is he is more subdued you know he's he's just come off filming a an anti-war film i think kind of i mean that experience um changed him quite quite significantly um, and, you know, the messaging in this, this album is is quite limited from him, but I feel like he, you know, through that LSD experience with with Paul McCartney, I think he's he's helping Paul through that. Yeah. So, you know, like on a, on a personal level, I think there's some interesting stuff going on there, but you're not necessarily hearing John in this album delivering that. I think you're kind of seeing some prop up,
0: Paul. I I guess my read on this is I think they've just come off their big tour. All of them are tired, but then Paul's just like, I want to do a thing. For me, I can feel Paul's energy being like, oh, my God, I've got this, like, bone that I need to chew. And you think about how fast this is. So Revolver was six months before this. Uh, Magical Mystery Tour is going to be roughly six months after this. That's also going to be definitely Paul's production. And then they go off to India to meditate. Then they come back for the White Album, and I'd say they're a little bit more of the Beatles by then – I think everyone was sick of being the Beatles, which is why they stopped playing live. They were sick of all that noise. John was probably sick of, you know, being the Messiah, and then also being hated for saying he was bigger than Jesus. I think he was tired. You know, this isn't a knock on John, because John comes back in a bit. But I really get the feeling that this is a, this is a Paul, Paul McCartney production.
2: You know, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with any particular point you're making, Ian, which makes me wonder if the reason I had such a loud, visceral response to your first <laughs> assertion is that the songs on this album that stuck out to me mo- the most are the ones uh, that, that John had a hand in. And those are the ones that I think of when I think of this album, even though that's not fair. They're a minority, right? They're not all of them but those are the ones that I think of and so hearing you talk through that all makes sense I don't disagree with any particular point
4: I've got a theory on why the John tracks really stick out so when I think of the production of this um so in revolver you're first hearing the 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 ADT device that they use to do the double tracking um and they use loads of that on this this album but for some reason it works best with John's voice. You know, like something about those frequencies that it just it gives you that kind of psychedelic feel. And Leasing The Sky with Diamonds, they really push push that double tracking. Um and it's I don't think it would work with Paul's voice. You know, I think cuz John's voice is quite, you know, it's less dynamic so you you get this kind of um you know, it's it's almost monotonal. <laughs> do
0: you actually? I was gonna say, do you think the nasalness
4: creates like a drone, like maybe, a psychedelic maybe. drone? But there's something about him using that equipment that is like, it's like the signature sound. I think I think they built it because he didn't want to do the the extra the recording doubling. of his voice. Yeah. yeah, so it's like he's kind of he's kind of pushed that technology with his laziness. <laughs> Um So it's kind of built around him, and it's like a signature sound so i think you know that that's a that's a really good reason why those songs really stick out because it just doesn't work with the other guys
3: they they don't i i think and maybe this is a good segue into talking to this track by track but we started off uh our opening song the titular song itself it sets the mood and that's where i think you know you could really make ian's argument that uh paul's about to take over and steal the show here, because the, the way the, the first track starts out, it's, you know, you, you imagine like, yep, they're done with mop tops, they're done with the old kind of hollow body guitar sound, or, you know, the insipid high school love lyrics. But, you know, Paul's voice has this edge to it. I, I think you can actually hear a little bit of fuzz and distortion in the guitars. And that's what sets the mood so that later, when we move into these other uh, more John-influenced songs, they, they really stick out like a sore thumb.
0: Yeah. I I would definitely agree. And with that, we will start the album starting with Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. We start with the opening track, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and it really is literally written to be a perfect opener. And I think the interesting thing here is that they are starting as the Beatles. They are rocking and it sounds live. And then they've added live sound effects in to make it sound live. Quick question. Has that ever been done
1: before? adding fake crowd noise or adding, like, fake background noise to an album? Like, I I know we're not all, like, music historians. But, like, to your knowledge?
0: To my knowledge, no. And at least never that famously. And I I think it could have only been, you know, Revolver the year before, well, the half a year before. They added, obviously, all the tape loops and stuff in. But I think, you know, if you're working with four tracks, it would be insane to try and add sound effects in.
1: Huh. Right. That's why I posed the question because that, yeah, they were kind of reinventing how to record an album during this entire mm. studio session.
0: Yeah.
4: Yeah. It's like they're, make it, they're making George Martin work where, you know, he'd never have, he would never go, let's just add this extra track on with this background noise because it's hard work. Yeah. And you're just forcing the guy to do it. And obviously he's great, you know, He's, he's capable, so that's fine. But, you know, and the irony of it as well. Like, you know, this is this, is this album that they're never going to tour. And you've got audience sound. I just love that.
0: Well, I think, and I don't know if they planned it to be this way, but I think spiritually they are playing as the Beatles, introducing Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and handing off to Billy Shears. And I think actually I don't know if they planned it this this like metaphysical, but that's what it feels like to me is they they, this is the only rock song in a classical sense with blasted guitars and a really heavy beat and all that. This is the rockingest the album ever gets. And then they're like, okay, and now we introduce you for the rest of the show to Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So I feel like spiritually the Beatles hand off then to Sergeant Peppers and they introduce Billy Shears as played by Ringo Starr. How do we feel about that vocal performance?
2: I loved that vocal performance. I think it it's was perfect. It's probably best. It was perfect for that song.
4: I was really interested to, to hear what you'd think of that, especially that last note he does.
2: I thought it was just very charming. It just sounded very genuine and authentic and the perfect tone and approach to a song like that
0: yep i I think he's got such a distinct voice and i think he carries a tune just fine and as we talked about in the last episode i think one of the magical things about the beatles is their interface between like nursery rhyme childhoodishness with like an adult sensibility and or a mature sensibility whatever you want to say and i think ringo nailed it with yellow submarine he nails it again with this. I think he has a really sing-songy voice.
4: Yeah, I think this is his best by far. And, and like I say, that last note he performs, that last word, it's
0: it's like it's it's quite impressive. Yeah. Oh, the the walk down, the friend, that one. Well, mm. you know,
3: this was his this was his one chance to shine on the album because uh, he was he, he's gone on record later as being pretty bored throughout the production of this whole thing which i thought was interesting again when you said they're all checked out except for paul but ringo's the only one who has publicly said anything about it but yeah this was his one chance to shine and he nails it and the both the content of lyrics and his delivery it just feels so unapologetically english that it's it really does have a lot of charm to it
2: did you all read the little factoid that when ringo recorded this all of the bandmates were around him to like feed into the Be theme. his friends. Be his friends <laughs> Be his and, and oh, help, help nice. him. Yeah, and that just, I think that comes across that kind of, that sense of camaraderie. And especially that last note, it just sounds so human and so real. And I, I loved Ringo's performance on this song.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with this statements that this is Ringo's best song and uh, it's probably my favorite ringo song out of all of them but um, not to take the podcast like down a debaucherous road but you can't talk about the song without talking about all of like the rumors and insinuation about what he means with the little help of my friends and we know about all of these uh, sort of scintillating details about the beatles when they were chummy young lads what? and uh, <laughs> I, I like to be honest there are rumors uh, that they uh Tell us tell us about s-
0: these rumors Nick. The the rumors that you're starting now.
1: <laughs> no, I oh, I could be I could be starting rumors but I uh, I believe Paul has come out and said that that they uh used to like all like hang out and have a wank. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs>
0: I, I'm definitely cutting this out Nicholas.
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean but like uh the fact that none of you guys have heard of this uh makes me <laughs> question it but i i think i i i like i remember like reading something about this and being blown away and i was like why is he talking about this
4: well you know they they did live in like you know when they were in germany like just in these little bunkhouses on their own exactly like, yeah yeah like
1: they they just like didn't ca- they like you're <laughs> spending so much time together like they just didn't care
4: I suppose they were like they were like stuck with each other for a long
3: time, weren't they? Like it's like you know? living
1: on an actual submarine. Yeah. Jesus
0: Christ! Hey, who knows? So, to to okay, to be fair, in Paul's big lyric book, you know the one that he just published last year, he actually does say this. That that's what the song is about. So you have, as in, not that they're all doing it with each other, but that what do you? No, see no, when they're you turn not. The they're audience? not like they're not
1: like giving each other reach arounds or anything like that. Ian,
4: <laughs> during the performance. Jesus Christ!
1: Come on, why? Why would your brain go? Why would your brain go there? Why? <laughs> So wait, so there, there, is evidence, there is evidence of this, and then everybody thinks this is hilarious that I brought this up, but there is okay. evidence of this. Yeah,
4: Do you know what, you've ruined that image that Anne gave us with the the friends all around him while he's performing that piece. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I start looking at that well, very differently. Okay, <laughs> yeah.
3: what does Paul actually say in that lyric book? For the record, what does he actually say?
0: Uh, So, okay. No, no. So for, for the record, uh, so Paul says the line about what do you see when you turn out the light? I can't tell you, but I know it's mine is, and he says this about wanking. No kidding. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. So who's crazy now? Who's crazy now? Okay.
0: Well done, Nicholas. I
1: think
3: honestly, (laughs) I think that's probably pretty valid because I think of the people who accuse this song of being a drug, like, ha ha ha. His friends are drugs. You know, yep. like, I think Spiro Agnew like, was the one who said that publicly. Like, oh, of course, that's what this is about, and it, that's it's it's just too obvious. So it's a fun tongue-in-cheek thing to take, you know, right-wing people like that and freak them out. But in reality, it's a fun, unapologetically English song about uh, perhaps
0: some alone time. Well, yeah, I'm glad we got here.
2: And that's not. This isn't the only song that they do that on in this album. No. They. Yeah, they sneak in a couple lines uh, throughout the whole album that are open to interpretation, however the listener wants to hear them. Wait, about drugs or about... (laughs) About non-safe-for-work topics, I suppose. Okay. I mean, this is 1967. People are still pretty buttoned up. Um, There's still a lot of stuff you can't really say or let alone sing about and... Could you say this was the beginning of the unbuttoning?
4: (laughs) It was only a couple of years ago that please, please me was, you know, kind of a risque thing to say and like, you know, a risque play on words. And it's, it just sounds so innocent.
0: Uh, Just so you know, please, please me is a a British phrase about rim jobs. Just... Just so we all really? know.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a well known. Yeah.
0: No, not at all. I, like I can't let you go this on in this. now. Jesus Christ.
2: <laughs> well, we could apply some of these comments to the line in the chorus I get high with a little help from my friends. Uh, even though marijuana was very commonplace at that point and a lot of people had tried it, it still wasn't publicly accepted. Um, and that that's in the chorus, even. That's not a throwaway line in the verse. That's part of the whole song, uh, which is a, you could interpret as getting high on drugs.
3: Exactly, and that's the part I think is just over, like way too obvious, so it's it's a fun wink and a nod, but in reality, it's about something very different.
0: Yeah. Well, I am happy we settled these <laughs> these deep questions.
2: <laughs> The the only other thing I want to say about the song is I really liked the bass line. I I really liked the walking bassline, uh, and I was reading that John Lennon was a, originally kind of wrote this as a different song when one of his fingers was br- like broken. So he is one of his pinky fingers, and I wonder if it was on his right hand. I couldn't find out which hand it was. That might um, kind of explain why that walking bass line with his left hand was so fun. It's because he was down a finger on the right, but like I so have joody. no way to. Yeah, I have no way to validate that theory.
4: From um, on on the production side, this album you hear a lot of um, like DI, like directly recorded into the desk, and a lot of the bass is recorded that way. The famous hollow body bass you know you get you actually get kind of more of the 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 bass frequencies that you can play with when you do that when you when you do record straight into the desk so yeah the, the bass like sounds really great on all these tracks it's it's just a great sound you you know it's just great tone
3: and who had who had come up with and pioneered that because it wasn't them but as far as plugging directly into the board instead of miking up an amp like that because that was pretty recent who was that
4: yeah i don't know I don't know. Like I I feel like it is something that was literally that year. I don't I'm not I'm really not sure, but um like yeah, there's great use of it in this track. Like we didn't mention it in the first one, but you know that 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 fuzzy guitar, that's straight into the desk as well. I'm sure of it. You know, you've really got like a that like the the top fuzzy bit of the the spectrum you probably wouldn't have heard through an amp because of the way the amp compresses things. So I I may be wrong, but that, to me, that sounds like they've really pushed it too hard into the desk. And it, again, it's really cool sound. A buzz, you know, rather than a,
0: like an overdrive sound. So they set up that Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is here now. And then they completely abandoned the concept in the third track, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Does anyone want to introduce what this is all about?
3: This is one, at least lyrically, that uh, everyone goes, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, LSD, ha, ha, ha. But John has publicly come out and talked about how it was a, a that, that concept is, he was looking at a pastel drawing that his son Julian had done, who was four years old at the time. And it makes a lot more sense when you start to think of it as kind of this, you know, childlike nursery rhyme-ish kind of song picture that he tries tries to paint there. And um, like you said, Ian, the, the concept completely goes away because this is the this is the first song where uh, it's clearly John's doing. To you know, he's one of the he's part of the cast of characters, but it's but I, I
1: think it's I think it's really interesting that that's true because uh, I didn't know that that it was about him describing a, a drawing that his son made. Um, but I, I think something that we sort of alluded to a lot, but we haven't really addressed head on, is that the Beatles had a really great sense of humor. And I think it was probably John chuckling to himself like, hey, everybody's going to think this song is about LSD, but it's really about yep. my innocent little son's painting. I'm just going to have a laugh about this. I'm sure that tickled him to no end, like that everyone thought this was a drug song. But really it was like, oh, this is just an innocent childlike wonder, which I guess has yeah. its own drug-like connotation.
4: I think if you really tried to write a song that was like this because of drugs, it's like mm-hmm. it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been as interesting. You know, you like, write it, what a great thing. Yeah, I think you couldn't. No. It's so cool.
2: And to Ed's point about would someone who was actually writing about an LSD trip write a song this good? And it sounds like we're saying no. This is probably simply influenced by previous media portrayals of LSD like Alice in Wonderland is the one I keep coming back to because that's the one this song reminds me of the most. Oh,
3: I think there, I think there even were some public comments. So I don't remember whether it was John or Paul that said this, but they actually did uh, remark on. We did try and record one or two times while we were under the influence, and the product was absolute just trash, like
1: unlistenable garbage.
4: <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, you I couldn't think...
1: do this. On drugs? Yeah. No. you couldn't. You could play no. any of these songs on drugs. No,
4: I think it's one of those. It, like, it, yeah, those. Obviously, the. And it, this goes to anyone who creates anything. You know, like the the experiences you have in your life influence your work. But it doesn't mean, you know, you know, if you're someone who you know gets a kick out of jumping out of planes, you're not going to write a song while you're jumping out of plane. But you know, that would be that would be impressive. But, but you
2: could you could write about someone else's <laughs> experience and how they've described exactly. it to you
4: exactly and and you know with this song, you know it's it's really easy to go oh yeah this is this is about l s d not just because of the title but like the sound of it, you know they're using that crazy tape modulation, no one's used to hearing that that like people are not used to hearing that effect it's it's new effect, yeah, it's on revolver, but you know like in other recordings, this is a George martin thing, you know they've recorded the vocals too fast and then slowed them down they've they've you know. It messes with your head, so you're like, oh, well, they, they, you know, this, they, they've done that on purpose to give us that feel, and, you know, like you were saying, it's not a visual thing, it's not an audio processing thing, it's a feel thing, isn't it? And they've, they've kind of, like, you know, it feels like, to me, that they've captured the vibe, you know?
2: Yeah, this, is, this album is 50 years old, and that sound is still distinctly weird. It's still a weird sound even now.
0: I was going to say, I feel like this is the psychedelic song. Like if you're like, what's the you know, dictionary definition of psychedelic song? It's this. And I feel even though they didn't use sitar, the harpsichord has that sitari creepy bling, 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 bling like sound. And they've got the drone of the tambura in the background going. Rrr.
4: I think they've got some like rotating speaker on the vocals as well. They use that Leslie um, organ speaker a lot in this album, I think.
2: The only other thing I wanted to say, I wanted to mention about the song is the time signature change from the verse to the chorus, how it goes into three, four in the chorus, which is, I guess, refreshing because usually when I think of prog rock, I think of Bands using a 9-8 time signature just to be jerks and just because they can. Um, and I don't know how accurate this is, but I was reading somewhere that George Martin was quoted as saying that John Lennon didn't really understand time signatures. Um, he just wanted to follow his lyrics. And his, if his lyrics told him to do something musically, he tried to communicate it to Martin and they would just do it, which was kind of a fun refreshing factoid that I hope is true.
0: I like that. Yeah. No, I'd say that, that squares very much with, with what we know about John and what we'll talk about later. And I think to that point, I think the switch from the the Waltzy 3 4 kind of nursery rhyme imagery and then the hard rock bump 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 four four chorus, that contrast is beautiful. Like it just explodes off the page so to speak. And you mentioned Alice in Wonderland. What I find very interesting about that, so you hit the nail on the head, John Lennon said that the lyrics are based on Alice in Wonderland. And interestingly, talking about Victoriana, that was another time and place where people were like, oh, all of these are drug references, because all the Victorians were on laudanum and whatnot. So all of the goofy Victorian, I won't say psychedelic, but Victorian fantasy imagery which was probably all, I don't know, social and political commentary. At the time, people were like, oh, these are just opium references and, and whatnot. So it's interesting that 80 years later, John Lennon takes that type of vibe. And I don't want to say does the same type of thing, but takes the vibe of, of a bunch of opium addicts. <laughs> it,
2: it just encapsulates the concept of whimsy even now, again, f- 50 years later. When I think of whimsy, I think of playing croquet with flamingos.
0: Yeah, yes. <laughs> a, a quick little anecdote. So I was walking home after school. It must have been, uh, I don't know, age 11, 13, something like okay, that. So like fifth grade? With a, yeah, fifth grade, grade or so. With, with a good friend of mine. And we were talking about Under the Bridge downtown by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And he was like, you know that song's about heroin? And I was like... Buddy, get out of town. They are the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They don't do drugs. They are hardworking, professional musicians. And he's like, no, no, seriously. Think about like the, you know, like under the bridge downtown. It's where I drew some blood. You know, that's like a heroin thing. Again, we're 13. And I was like, I don't know what he's talking about, but that is Anthony Kiedis. He has a job in a house and you're (laughs) going to bring... That sort of slander, you're going to bring that sort of slander to this conversation. So anyways, I, I was a, I was a narc. <laughs> yep. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: I love that story.
4: I, uh... But it kind of speaks to, like, that, that is a really interesting story in that it, it does speak to how we think about drug use. You know, it's always this negative thing. And it's like, well, that's just half the story, isn't it? You know?
0: My, my only flag in the ground with both drugs and then just we'll, – we'll drop to darkness for just one second – and mental illness, which we'll talk about in two weeks' time with Pink Floyd. Um, drugs and mental illness in music. I will say I think they are a component that you can't escape from because creative people tread that line. They, they walk through the doors of perception many, many a time. I will say there's also a bunch of people who do drugs and don't write Sgt. Pepper's.
1: I'd say the majority.
0: Of yeah, in fact, most of the people taking drugs aren't writing *Sergeant Pepper's*. I will say there's an element of it's inescapable because I think creative people are obviously drawn to that as well.
4: Well, if you if you think of the Beatles, like no one had been that big before. You know, these guys are dealing with a lot of a lot of stress. They weren't looked after properly. You know, they were put into some really dangerous situations. There's loads of examples of that. Um, so they're probably like dealing with some crazy trauma. You know, I think these guys were, like, kind of self-medicating. And, oh, yeah. And, you know, like, like we alluded to before, like, you know, this is the first time all four of them had, like, kind of dabbled with the drugs. And it's like, and you've got this, you know, refinding their friendship again.
3: Well, sure. I was just going to say, Ed, I think you're spot on about that, just the self-medication part, because that kind of fandom that they had experienced and been on the receiving end of did not exist up until that point. Obviously, that's part of why they quit touring. But that, that really was new and scary and terrifying to be the object of that much adoration. Like, that did not exist before this, before the Beatles.
4: Yeah, they talk about how um, they could have just put some waxwork versions of themselves on stage. Yeah. I think it's John, John says this, and that would have satisfied the fans. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, terrifying stuff.
3: Well, yeah, you get to the point where you, you, you can't even play because you can't even hear anything. The crowd's too loud.
1: Ian's point about um you know like artists and mental illness because i mean uh, at the time uh in the 60s like psychology was still very freudian it didn't really have like a modern sense of psychology as we know it now i wonder if any of the beatles would have identified with some of the you know like depression or ADHD any of like the modern descriptions of of mental illness and maybe that would explain like their their state uh in after enduring all this trauma and you know seeking out something to escape if
0: anyone had allowed it to come out i think that probably would have had to have been true as you've all been saying like that the level of fandom they experienced was probably horrible and they're 23 or so by the time they record this yeah I think they probably were really under the gun. And I think, obviously, John more so because he, he got labeled as you know their, their leader and got all the love and the hate on, in just prodigious amounts. I think the other thing that we need to remember is that the Beatles are baby boomers. So I think they came up, certainly in Britain and working-class Britain, under the don't-you-dare-show-the-cracks.
4: Yeah, and that's the thing, like, in, in Britain after the war times are not sunny you know like it's it was really hard times like kids have nothing growing up you know like they 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 were they were probably growing up in really struggling times
2: i was gonna say i think i alluded to this in my opening thoughts about the how this how these songs work better as an album and not piecemeal because of how jaded this band seems when you really examine the subject matter of their songs in that they're, um, we haven't gotten to some of the, the later ones, but, you know, based on news stories, based on a poster that they saw in the store, um, based on what they see out their front window, and it is almost a reflection of them not engaging with the world for a while and just writing, not to, not to fall too much into the critique of Randy Newman, but singing about stuff they see. As opposed to stuff they do and stuff they're experiencing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's, I mean, that's a a fantastic point, actually. That, like, I I think this is a through-the-glass-darkly experience. But on the lighter side, I do think that they they are starting to sing about, I'll call it personal emancipation, which is what we're getting into in 1967, The Summer of Love. And I think we start right off the bat with the next song, Getting Better. I think the thing that's interesting about me is we've just we've experienced the psychedelia of Lucy and the Sky with Diamonds and we're going to experience some more psychedelia down the road in day in the life. But I think this album tricks you into thinking that it's a psychedelic album, because I'd say getting better is not really more psychedelic than Revolver and not really more psychedelic than many other things that are going on. I actually think this would have fit real well with maybe like on Rubber Soul or something. I think it's just a pretty jaunty little tune. I mean, actually it's a phenomenal tune, but it's just a jaunty little song about feeling better and I feel like it really encapsulates the spirit of the 60s as oh well. we're trying or 67 rather we're trying to get better.
2: I think it's more a good reflection of the 60s because of that throwaway line in the end about beating your partner. We don't like to think about that line, but the no. third verse um, is I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. Man, I was mean, but I'm changing my scene and I'm doing the best that I can.
4: Whoa, that's heavy.
2: That marks a pretty distinct departure from She Loves You. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Man, that's <laughs> so real.
1: That's true. Uh, although it, uh, the majority of the song is about, um, like, you know, feeling better since you've been mine. And yeah. that's why I say that that's more of a uh, love-me-do kind of sentiment. Yeah, but you can't ignore that last line for sure, uh, or the last verse. And that is them being more introspective than I think we're used to seeing from them. Yeah, I just think that, you know, it's just got that pop sensibility, unlike some of the previous songs on the album, which is what makes me hearken back to the earlier days of, you know, holding hands
4: yeah and and as you know song structure goes it's 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 you know it's like solid obvious solid you know song structure you get your verse your chorus verse chorus and then the middle eight is that you know in the storytelling you've got the the what if moment and that's when you hear the sitar for the first time on the album and it gives you that kind of oh we've just we just flipped into a different way of thinking play the sitar gives you that kind of and then flip back to the last verse, which is you know that dark line that you just discussing. Then it's like back to reality, and it's um it's just, that's it's heavy. It's really heavy.
0: And I, I think maybe this is the them flagging up now the generational divide, as in that yeah. that this is how again I I I've, I've, I cannot Freudalize the Beatles themselves, but I'll say as a society thing, them saying this is how as a society we used to be, and this is as a society where we want to be. I don't actually know, personally speaking, I don't know if uh, John Lennon was actually on the way to treating women better. I don't actually, I, like, I don't know where he was in that journey.
3: But at least there's some
2: self-awareness.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, the funny thing is, I don't know, I actually don't know if Paul gave him that
2: line, which
0: is the interesting thing.
2: So, it, it, Lenin is quoted in one of his last interviews before his death that it is rooted in his own um, transition from a more violent outlook on life to a more peaceful one. I think he's quoted as saying, it is a diary form of writing.
3: Well, I think that transition that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense given their upbringing and industrial, you know, post-war liverpool and the kind of the the rough and tumble way of life they'd had there versus this his new outlook on things i I think that fits pretty well
2: no and that's why i agree i think it's a good reflection of the six the 1967 era is that this hopeful admission that things are getting better and people are trying but there is kind of a, a dark underbelly and a dark history that we're still trying to come back from
4: yeah and that's the thing like if you were from liverpool I I imagine as a child, you know, you'd have seen those buildings were still been rubble from when they were bombed. You know, so those are the cities that were targeted.
2: Oh yeah,
3: and uh, the uh, you know, and your parents are not them specifically, but like the the royal group of people that would have been there at that time. You know, your parents are your your dad's an angry drunk dock worker that does beat his wife. You know, that's that's yep. that's the scene. Yeah.
4: Well, as just say, the. You know, like, you talk about the, the production stuff in Revolver, having, like, you've got all these new techniques to play with, but then they didn't have the time to do it. And then when they, they've they literally got all the money they want to play with, all the time they want to play with on this. So that is kind of a hopeful vibe, you know. These guys really can just sit and play with this stuff. So there's another getting better hopeful vibe that's coming through in the in the studio
0: environment. And I think that continues on to the next track, Fixing a Hole, which is just straight up from Paul's mouth. Just this is a thing about looking at your life and fixing things. Nice and easy. Now, continuing on with our shocking the establishment thing, the, the British press at the time said, oh, it's fixing a hole with heroin, blah, 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 blah. Which is funny. I had completely not even thought about this because this doesn't feel like a slow and... Zonked type of song. This is actually really jaunty, not very Nirvana esque. Um, yeah, that's not how you fix a hoe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, Paul, from his very own mouth, says this is a song about looking around your life, seeing the things that are wrong and fixing them. And I think actually playing off the, the last song, Getting Better as well, they continue with really interesting beats. Cause this has that jaunty showtime tune and and another descending bass line, a la Lucy in the Sky with
2: Diamonds. And those backgrounds, the ooze and the ahs. The the luscious backing vocals.
1: Would you say, Ian? Would you say this is the most jaunty prog rock album out of all of them?
0: Well, I think we're still in proto prog, which is why like sure. I think the fact that this is actually unabashed fun. And I hope this sells everyone for the rest of the, the podcast series. The fact that this is actually fun suggests that this isn't yet Prague.
1: <laughs> okay, because that's why I asked the question. That's why I asked the question. Because I know we know this is proto-Prog, yeah. But yeah. we're addressing it on this podcast. So that yes. means that it, it's tangentially connected in some way to yep. Prague. Because uh, it's, it's important to address. But is that the distinction? Like, if this was less jaunty, would you then be like, oh, this is the first Prague Rock album?
4: Did we Did we have, like, did we decide one time that, you know, there are no working-class prog
0: artists? I don't know if we... I don't, I don't, I'll check the minutes, but I
1: don't, I don't know if... If it hasn't been said yet, I'm glad someone said it, because yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious.
4: It feels that way anyway, doesn't it? It's, yeah. It's
2: a working-class thing. I just think we have to mention, with Fixing a Hole, that it's about McCartney... And how his fans would just stand outside of his house all the time. And how he saw the issue from his perspective. Oh, so this is another, like, literally looking through the... This is him literally looking through the windows at people watching him and wanting to come inside. And they stand there and give off the impression, don't let us in, (laughs) is what Paul McCartney is quoted as saying.
0: Oh, interesting. And so this goes back to him look, experiencing the world from inside, looking out.
2: Exactly.
4: I don't know who's playing guitar on this one, but the guitar solo on this one I love. So the thing with like using like modulation effects on, on guitars, like what makes them really stand out is often like the really smallest time delays. You know, you hear it on this album loads of times, you know, with the tape machines. Like, it's literally someone slowing down the tape by putting their finger on the tape. Mm. So you're getting, like, the slowest delay times and these wobbles. And you get these crazy flanging effects that are going on. And you hear it loads on the vocals, but, like, you hear it on the guitar on this one. And I, I just love it.
2: It sounds very dreamy. Yeah.
4: Yeah, it's cool. Love it.
0: So we come next to one of the few Beatles songs where no Beatles actually play on the song. We talked about this with Eleanor Rigby last week, but we've got now She's Leaving Home, which interestingly is a Paul McCartney song that Lennon added some lyrics to. I think it's about one of their fans who left home or something, as in they had read
2: a... Yes, they didn't actually know she was a fan, um, but they saw there's a... An article in the Daily Mirror that Paul read about a 17-year-old girl named Melanie Coe who ran away to be with her older boyfriend, and they realized later that she had she was a fan and she had actually met Paul McCartney like three years previously. But I don't think I don't believe he knew that when they wrote this song.
0: It's a great little slice of life, and interestingly, for most of my life, I've just skipped this song because was just like, okay, I'm grooving, I'm grooving up nonsense classical song and then back to grooving you barbarian oh yeah no no I'm, I'm unabashedly a philistine but listening again yeah that that backing track is 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 lush and the melody is actually really good and I, I say actually as if i'm surprised that the beatles came up with a good melody
1: um i think it's interesting that they decided to go back to the eleanor rigby formula And would you say that this is very avant-garde for the Beatles to go down a direction where they're not playing any instruments at all? Like, I I get that they couldn't perform Eleanor Rigby on stage and that they were giving up performing on stage, and that's sort of the message of this album. Um, Or sort of what drives a lot of the, you know, sort of ideas behind it.
4: You know, here's a song you cannot perform as a band on stage, you know. I
0: mean, I I would say the, I don't know if it's avant-garde I mean, it's avant-garde, I guess, for a rock band to do this. I think what's very interesting, and we'll come to this in uh, later on in this album, um, that Paul obviously looked back to song hall tunes, maybe reinventing them, maybe bringing stuff on. But interestingly, it's another song about personal emancipation. She's leaving. You know, and because John sings the parents as a counterpoint, and like, what are you saying? We gave you most of our lives. We did all the stuff for you. And she's saying, nah, I'm meeting a man from the motor trade. So again, we are, we're squarely in 1967.
2: Very struck by their age when they wrote this. They wrote it from the perspective of the parents as opposed to the girl. And this is another, mm-hmm. another point in my corner for this was based on a news article that Paul read. So he had another instance of him writing based on what he's seen and not necessarily what he's living or what he's doing.
0: I mean, it must have been very weird for them just living in essentially like a tour bus I mean, and it stuck like that. It's a lesson for songwriters,
4: you know, maybe, maybe don't write about what you know. Oh,
2: yeah.
4: Because that's, that's the, the, the trope, isn't it? Everyone says, oh, I'll write about what you know. It's like, yeah, well, maybe that's not true, you know. Yeah. I think, I think David Bowie used to do something similar. Like, he'd, he'd cut out words and just kind of move them around like this on the desk.
0: I'm miming things. Yeah, moving the, words. <laughs> <laughs> the, moving the words. audio lins- listeners at home, Listen. he's miming, yeah, yeah.
1: moving things around.
0: Yeah. And then he did cocaine for three years, and then you know, and then, <laughs> and then he records heroes. <laughs> the rest is history. Yeah, and right. that's history. Yeah,
4: yeah.
0: And that's where we'll leave it today. I have been your host, Ian Prize, and this has been a sort of young person's guide to Prague Rock. Do find us on Instagram at progfrogpod.com. If you have any longer thoughts, queries, opinions, we are at helloprogfrog at gmail.com. Thank you to my guests, Nick, Anne, Ryan, and Ed. Join us next week for the second half of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band.